Well, I think that we all can think of examples of people in our lifetime who finished their lives well with the Lord. They finished their walks with the Lord well. You know, I think of my mom, I think of my grandmother. My grandmother in her late 80s couldn't see very well, but she wanted to still memorize scripture. And she would have me go out and buy poster boards and write a verse in huge letters on those poster boards, and I'd line them up. And every day I'd go over, and she would talk, tell me the verse, and she would read those big letters. She finished well. She finished strong. But I think there's also examples in our lives of people that we think of who did not finish well, who didn't finish strong. Something happened along the way. And I know for me, um, I want to finish strong. And I, I pray that for you. And I think you probably feel the same way. We want to finish strong. And so uh, the author of Hebrews was exhorting his readers to do that very thing in these verses, actually through the whole book, finish strong in your walk of faith. And so last week we looked at the introduction uh, to this book and then the first two chapters of Hebrews as he established why Jesus is better than the angels and why he alone should be worshipped. And this week we moved into Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 and we continue the theme of superiority of Jesus. And as I studied this passage this week, the one message that I came away with was that challenge to finish strong. And that's my challenge for you. Finish strong. And so, uh, in these two chapters, I want to focus on four exhortations that would help us finish strong. Four things that jumped out at me. And so the first one is, Exalt God's Son, in Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. And I was thinking about this yesterday. I'm going to give you hand positions with each of these four exhortations to maybe help you remember them. Just pretend that you're in vacation Bible school and you're learning these hand motions or positions. But with this one, to exalt God's Son, I just think, raise your hands. I mean, that's the, I want to exalt Him. Nothing else. God's Son. And so the author begins in chapter 3 with contrasting Moses with God's Son, Jesus. And why? Why take the time to talk about Moses? Well, because he was one of the heroes of the, the Jewish people. He was a great leader, and he, led, he delivered them out of Egypt. They looked up to him. He wrote the First five books of the Old Testament, or most scholars believe he wrote those books, they looked up to Moses. They saw him as a leader. And because some were considering going back to Judaism and the Mosaic Law, the author wanted to remind them that Jesus is superior to Moses. Don't worship Moses. Worship, exalt God's Son. And so we begin in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And I want to stop there and, and just look at that verse a little closer. He begins with that word, therefore, referring back to what he's just talked about in the previous two chapters, that Jesus is God and that Jesus 
is man. Therefore, in light of that and all he has done, and then he moves on and he, then he says, holy brethren, addressing that these are believers. Now, there may have been some that weren't, but they were professing that they were. But he's writing to believers, not non-believers. Partakers of a heavenly calling. And then he says, consider Jesus. And that word in the Greek for consider conveys um, faithful attention, focusing on who Jesus is. And so in these first six verses, the author points out some similarities between Jesus and Moses. But he also points out the differences and why Jesus is superior. And so I want to walk us through first the similarities and then the differences. And so we begin with the similarities. These are in verses 1 and 2. And the first is he, apostle. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a second, I don't think Jesus was necessarily an apostle or Moses. But it says here, Jesus, the apostle. And he was an apostle in the very basic sense of the, the word, the basic meaning of the word apostle. Apostle means sent one. And so Jesus was sent by God with authority. An apostle is sent by authority to carry out a mission or a purpose. To take a message. And that's what Jesus did. He was sent by God to this earth to proclaim salvation, the message of salvation, and to die for our sins. He is God's messenger. But Moses, even though he wasn't given the title of apostle, Moses was also a sent one. God sent him with authority to lead the Israelites out of, of Egypt. He was God's messenger to the Israelites in that period of the Old Testament. So they were similar in that. They were both sent out by God to do a mission. The second similarity is high priest. Um, verse 1, again, it tells us Jesus, our high priest. He is our high priest today who made the ultimate sacrifice. The high priest would go and make sacrifices, offer sacrifices for our sins. Jesus did that, but he made the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. But a high priest also went before God on behalf of the people and would intercede for them. Jesus did that and still does that today. He intercedes for us. Now Moses didn't have the title of high priest. Aaron did. But Moses was in a sense, a high priest, because a high priest represents man to God. And we read over and over of the times that Moses would go to God and intercede for the people. Even one time he, he said, God, take my life so that they don't have to die. Of course, he, he couldn't. He wasn't a perfect sacrifice. But he was a high priest in the sense that he would go before God, on behalf of the people. He was an intercessor for them. And then a third way they were similar is that they were faithful leaders. Uh, verse 2, chapter 3, tells us that both were faithful. It says, he, referring to Jesus, was faithful to him who appointed him, 
as Moses also was in all his house. Both had that attribute there of faithfulness. Now, Moses wasn't perfect, but he was faithful to go to Egypt and lead the sons of Israel out of bondage. He carried out his commission. Jesus continues to be faithful today as he carries out. He's already carried out his mission, but he's still faithful today in interceding for us, in guiding us. So that's their similarities. But now let's turn to their differences. Why is Jesus superior? They have some things in common, but these are their differences. In verses 3 through 6, the author points out how they're different and why Jesus is superior. The first reason is because Jesus was the builder of God's house, which is God's people. Moses was only part of the house. We see that in verse 3. Jesus built the house. He is the foundation of God's people. Moses was only part of the house, serving. So he is, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. A second difference is that Jesus is God and Moses is not. In verse 4, it says that the builder of all things is God. Well, if God built everything, and it tells us that Jesus built God's house, then Jesus is God. Moses cannot claim that. Only Jesus can claim that. And then the third difference is that Jesus is the son and Moses was a servant. We see that in verses 5 in the beginning of verse 6. Now Moses was faithful in all his house, God's house, as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Jesus is the son who rules over the house, who's the head of the house, the body of Christ. Moses served the people, the Israelites, but he served in the the tabernacle, which was a foreshadowing of what would come in the future. Jesus is better. He is superior. We come to the second part of verse 6, and this has kind of been a a little bit of a controversial verse. In verse, end of verse 6, he says, Whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And some have used that verse to say that a believer can lose his salvation. See, it says, you're God's house, you're God's child, if you hold fast your confidence. But it's not really saying that you're losing your salvation. You can lose your salvation because we know elsewhere in Scripture it says we can't. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. What he is saying there is that your perseverance in the faith is proof of your salvation. If your faith stays strong to the end, that is proof that you are saved. If you wander away and never come back, then no, you probably weren't. Uh, you know, I, that, does, that doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. I wandered for two and a half years as a carnal Christian. Paul talks about that in his letter to the Corinthians. 
I wandered two and a half years, and I actually had to ask, God, am I a believer or not? And as Bonnie helped me walk it through, I mean, she confirmed that, yes, I believe that you have Christ in your heart because you're convicted every time you sin. But there's that period of carnality. But what he's talking about is if you walk away and you never come back. I remember in college at LSU, after I started walking with the Lord, there was a guy who came to Christ, or so we thought, and through crusade, and he was talking the lingo and coming to our meetings. And I thought, boy, he's a great, he's really growing. And then a few months later, he said, I'm done. I'm an atheist. There's no God. This is a bunch of hogwash. Walked away. And I remember there, our crusade leaders trying to just explain that either he's carnal or he's never been a believer. And as far as I know, he never came back to the faith. Our perseverance to the end is proof of our salvation. So that's his first exhortation, to help us finish strong, exalt God's Son. His second is follow God's leading. In verses three, or, or chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, and the hand position that I think of here is reaching out my hand to grab God's hand and let him lead me. If we're going to finish strong, we have to follow his leading. We have to reach out and say, God, take me, lead me. So in verse 12, we come to the second warning of the five warnings in this book. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, this warning's a little bit stronger than the first warning, and you're going to see that progression throughout the book. Each warning is a little bit more severe. In chapter 2, verse 1, with the first warning, he was warning them to pay attention to what they'd heard so that they would not drift away from what they'd heard. Now he's saying, so that you will not fall away from the living God. So it's a little bit stronger warning. And what he's warning them is the danger of not following God's leading, the danger of disobedience, which results from unbelief. And then he prefaced this warning with the verses above, uh, starting in verse 7, where he he quotes verses from Psalm 95, which reminds them, he's talking about the disobedience of the Israelites when they refused to follow God's leading into Canaan. At Kadesh Barnea, when the spies came back and ten gave a negative report and two gave a positive, and they listened to the negative and they said, nope, God, I'm not following your leading. And they disobeyed. They disobeyed and they paid the consequences. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until all the adults died. They disobeyed because they didn't believe God. They didn't have a belief. They didn't believe that God would do what he said he would do. They didn't believe that God was powerful enough to defeat their enemies. They didn't trust him which is what it really comes down to when we don't follow God's leading. He warned his readers in Hebrews about having an evil, 
unbelieving heart like the Israelites. So how can we avoid having a hardened heart and a disobedient heart? Well, verse 13 tells us. It gives us a solution. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, the way that we avoid that hardened heart is that we need to encourage one another continually, day after day after day, every day that we're on this earth. We need that fellowship. We need that accountability. We need to gather together like we are today and not be isolated. People say, oh, I don't really need to gather with the body. Yes, we do. Because there's accountability. There's that spurring on. That was one of the things that was hard about our time in March and April of 2020 when we weren't meeting together. And there's no accountability. I mean, nobody knows what you're doing. You're in your house. We need to encourage each other so that we will follow God's leading. You know, one of the things that makes me so sad today is how divided we are as churches in the U.S. We spend more time arguing about non-spiritual things. Uh, we, we spend our time debating about the things that we just don't agree and, and why my reason's the right way to think. We don't agree on COVID. We don't agree on masks. We don't agree on vaccinations. We don't agree on how we're treating things. We don't agree on the politics of what's going on in our country. But what I want to encourage us to do is that we would spend our time together encouraging one another and not not debating, not spending time focused on those things that we don't agree about. We need to be spurring each other on to the Lord, not debating things that aren't in the Word. And that would be my challenge to us. And even in our small group time, I hope that we're spending more time studying the Word than talking about, well, I can't believe you did this or you didn't do this. That we would focus on God. And that is how we need to encourage one another. Not divide each other. And I think Satan loves what he sees happening among churches today. With the division and the disunity. Let's not be part of that. So the first two exhortations that we see is exalt God's son. And... Follow God's leading, reaching out that hand and taking his hand. The third is embrace God's rest. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Most of chapter 4 is this topic. And here, uh, the hand position that I think of is embracing his rest. I just, a big hug. Yes, Lord, I want to rest. And the Bible speaks, I want to start with this section uh, by pointing out the various kinds of rest in the Bible. The Bible talks about at least five different kinds of rest because I think it's important to help us understand what he's talking about in chapter 3 and then again in chapter 4. So the first rest that we read about in the Bible is creation rest in Genesis 2. God rested on the seventh day after creation. 
not because he was tired and thought, oh, I need a nap. But he rested because he finished his work of creation. And he took time to just enjoy it. That was the first rest we read about. Second is rest from enemies. That's what he's talking about in Hebrews 3 at the end. In the time of the Israelites, they were to enter God's rest in Canaan, meaning rest from their enemies and rest from the wilderness. But they didn't do that. At least the adults did not enter that rest. Those that refused to listen to Joshua and Caleb. The third rest we read about is in the New Testament salvation rest. And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, <clears throat> Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> He's referring here to salvation rest. There were people, he was talking to Pharisees and people who were striving with their works. Oh, I need to work for my salvation. And, the, and he's saying, are you tired? Are you weary? We often take this verse out of context. He's not saying, do you need a rest? Do you need a nap? Come on and rest with me. He's saying, stop striving for your salvation. Come to me. I will give you salvation rest. Rest from the penalty of sin. Rest from having to work for your salvation. That's salvation rest. And then fourth is rest of obedience or obedience rest. That's in the very next verse, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, when he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's saying... You take my yoke upon you and you let you walk in step with me and you let me guide you. You obey and you will experience my rest as you do that. And that rest is experiencing all the riches of Christ that we were meant to enjoy. All that we have in Christ. That's obedience rest. And then a fifth rest, which he's really referring to in Hebrews 4, is eternal rest, a future rest. That rest that we will experience when we leave this earth and either meet Jesus in the sky or um, when he comes back or when we take our last breath. That is that rest from the presence of sin, from our spiritual enemies. We don't have to fight Satan anymore. We don't have to fight people or our, our emotions or our sinful tendencies. That's eternal rest. So at the end of chapter 3, he was talking about rest from enemies. They would have found that in Canaan had the Israelites first gone in. Had they obeyed God instead of saying, no, we're not going. They died in the wilderness. And then in chapter 4, he's referring to the eternal future rest. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, therefore, in light of what I've just talked about concerning rest and unbelief, this example, therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. 
Some may have thought that God's promise of rest was no longer available since Joshua took the Israelites in later and they experienced that Canaan rest. So they may have thought, that's, that's it. I mean, there's no rest left, so I might as well go back to Judaism. But he reminded them that that rest is still available because God was still talking about that rest in the time of David. And if it wasn't available, he wouldn't be talking about it. And so he's challenging them, endure to the end. You finish strong and you will rest forever in God's eternal kingdom. So that's what he was challenging them to embrace that eternal rest. So three exhortations so far to help us finish strong. Exalt God's Son. Follow God's leading by taking His hand. And the uh, embracing God's rest. Taking hold of it. Now we come to the fourth exhortation. Listen to God's Word. Chapter 4, verses 12 to 13 and the hand symbol here I use is just kind of cupping my ears. I'm listening, God. So let me read verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The author had just stated that true believers will enter God's promised rest. But there are some who are going to profess to be believers, but they're not going to finish strong because they didn't really make a sincere profession. And so he reminds them of the importance of God's word. God's word judges what's in our hearts. God's word shows us the true intentions of our heart. We cannot fool God and and say the right words, but not really put our faith in him. He knows that. He knows if we're sincere. The word cuts us. It shows us. It convicts us what's there. It's just a reminder of how important it is that we are in God's word every day. Asking him, Lord, I'm listening. Show me what's in my heart. Show me sin that could trip me up. And like I did in college, God, show me. Am I not a believer because of my past two and a half years? Let God's word guide us, convict us, point us to finishing strong. So, If we're going to finish strong, we have to exalt God's Son. We have to follow God's leading. We have to embrace God's rest. And we have to listen to God's word. How will you respond to these four exhortations? Are you exalting God's Son, Jesus? Or are you exalting someone or something else? Are you following God's leading, taking him by the hand or taking his hand and letting him follow you? Or are you saying, nope, not going that way, Lord. I'm going my way. 
or letting fear keep us from following him? Third, are you embracing God's rest? Are you experiencing his rest today? Experiencing and enjoying all the riches that he's given you? Are you looking forward to that eternal rest? Or are you still striving to please God and striving in your own efforts to live the Christian life? And fourth, are you listening to God's word? Or are you just reading it like we talked about in James? Reading it look like looking in a mirror and then walking away and forgetting it. Several years ago, I, I shared about this situation, but a lot of you were not here then. When I was in um, East Asia studying uh, a language there, I, we had a, a translator, a young girl, beautiful, very sharp, very on top of things. And she got to know us as we were studying the language, and she would translate in her heart was just so open, and she would ask us questions about our faith, and she finally came to Christ. And then one day we realized that Ping, and I'm just giving her that nickname of Ping, Ping wasn't there. And we wondered what happened, and then finally the leaders of the school came to us and said, uh, Ping is in the hospital. And so she managed to get a phone call out to one of my, our students, one of my friends that she was really close with. And so Liz went to visit her. And many of you might remember Elizabeth Boyd, or I called her Liz, but Elizabeth Boyd was here. Liz went to see her because Liz and I were in this country together at the same time. Liz went to visit her. And she came back and she said, I couldn't believe what I saw because she had been beaten up in her apartment complex after she came home one day, she had been beaten up by these people in her building, and they were jealous of her, and they, she was cut, her cheeks were cut, her jaw was broken, her teeth were knocked out. Um, she couldn't walk because they had hit her so hard on the head, she had brain damage. And she said, I didn't recognize her. But she said, the one thing that caught my attention when I walked in that room was her Bible was open beside her head. So Ping talked to her the best she could, and she said, you know, my husband, and her husband was in the Communist Party. And he told her, he said, well, now you'll denounce your God, won't you? For what kind of God would do this to somebody that they loved? I mean, you've got to walk away from this God. See, what I've been telling you is true. And Ping, instead of walking away and saying, yeah, you're right, she said, I told my husband, no, I will never denounce my God because I would not get through this without him. And he is with me. I don't know what happened to Ping because we shortly after that moved to a different city. And we didn't have emails and text messages and cell phones or emails. But I have a feeling that young girl is finishing strong because she started out and knew where, she went through one of the hardest tests that I can imagine. But that is my desire for us. 
that we would finish strong no matter what comes our way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the example of Ping and her desire to follow you more than than anything else. And Father, I pray that as we're going into unknown times, we don't know what the future holds. But Lord, hold us fast, and I pray that we would stand fast, that we'd not fall by the wayside, that we keep our eyes fixed on you, that we'd exalt Jesus, that we would follow your leading, that we would embrace your rest, that we would listen to your word. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.